Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In a small Egyptian village, a young boy listened intently as his mother and grandmother spun exciting bedtime stories. Rather than traditional tales of ancient Egypt, Anwar al-Sadat's bedtime stories featured the fearless young men who opposed the British forces that occupied and oppressed his beloved country, Egypt. These men dared to stand up to corruption and abuse by a foreign power, risking their lives. They were the heroes young Anwar would always look up to. These stories remained near to Anwar's heart. He knew that, like the heroes in his bedtime stories, he too could not rest until liberty was granted to Egypt. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact unique personality and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little known facts. And today we'll be taking a closer look at the life and untimely death of Anwar al-Sadat, whose political career, diplomacy, and visionary efforts to attain peace in the Arab world changed the course of history. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, we'd really appreciate if you could leave a five-star review. Now, back to the life of Anwar al-Sadat. Anwar al-Sadat was born on December 25, 1918, about 40 miles outside of Cairo, Egypt. He was raised in a town called Meet Abul Qum, near the Nile Delta. It was a time of great political upheaval for Egypt and its fellow Arab nations, including Syria. This political landscape came to shape every aspect of Sadat's life, starting as a small child. It's important to understand the historical context of Sadat's childhood in order to understand how his belief system developed and evolved over time and the ways in which he grew into a political visionary. British forces first took control of Egypt after their troops defeated the Egyptian army in 1882 in the Anglo-Egyptian War. Historians debate the initial cause, but one popular argument is that Britain sent troops in to protect the Suez Canal. Britain feared that their access to this canal, which provided an easier trade route, was threatened during a time of political upheaval in Egypt. Some historians believe that the British attacked Egypt to quell this upheaval and maintain control of the canal. This attack led to the beginning of the decades-long British occupation of Egypt. During this time, Britain sought to stabilize the Egyptian economy and government. Britain remained an influential presence in Egypt for decades. Unfortunately, while their imposed reforms benefited both the upper and middle classes of Egypt, they left the poor even poorer. Tensions escalated, with growing nationalism and anti-colonial sentiments spreading through the working classes of Egypt. These nationalist sentiments turned to violent uprisings. And in 1922, Britain officially declared the independence of Egypt. Despite this success, however, 
British forces continued to occupy Egypt for decades. Britain installed a corrupt monarchy in Egypt, and they continued to play a heavy role in manipulating and controlling the government and the economy. It was into this British-occupied Egypt that Anwar al-Sadat was born. He lived with his parents, Anwar Muhammad al-Sadat and Sit al-Bahrain, and was one of 13 siblings. Anwar Sadat developed a love and passion for his village of Meet Abul Kum. As a child, he often played in the village square with a young girl named Ekbal Afifi, though her parents cautioned her against spending too much time with him as they were prejudiced against his darker skin, referring to him as that black one. Well, Sadat's family had the cards stacked against them. As they were poor, they did not own any land, and Sadat's mother was a black woman from Sudan. All of this gave their neighbors cause to view them as inferior, especially his friend Ekbal's family. Sadat did not speak or write much of his mother, Set Alberan, the daughter of a freed African slave, whose darker skin was a trait that Sadat inherited. Many historians believe that this brought shame to Sadat. Nubians, that is, people from Sudan, have long been the victim of racism and colorism in Egypt. However, Sadat does credit his mother's and grandmother's bedtime stories with shaping the man he grew into. The two women did not tell the tired classic stories of ancient adventures at bedtime, but instead told tale of the modern heroes who were fighting for Egypt's independence from Britain at that exact same time. Young Sadat drifted off to sleep with stories of nationalist heroes, people fighting for political freedom in his head. One story was about Mustafa Kamil, an Egyptian political leader who opposed British occupation in Egypt and was fatally poisoned. Another story hit closer to home for Sadat, the Ballad of Zaharam. It was based on a true story of the incident in Denchwe. The violent incident broke out after British forces accidentally set fire to a wheat silo while shooting pigeons for sport. When farmers began to gather to help put out the fire, British soldiers shot at them and the farmers retaliated, killing one of the soldiers. In an aggressive show of power, the British forces punished the farmers by whipping and hanging them. Zaharan, the leader of the attack against the British officers, was the first to be hung, and the rumors of his courage spread far and wide. The story inspired Sadat. He developed a deep-seated disgust towards British forces and a strong sense of national heroism that he never lost. Though she did contribute to young Sadat's developing worldviews, his mother was not around very much during his early childhood years. Sadat's father was educated primarily in English, and when he received his general certificate of primary education, he was primed for employment by the British Occupation Army. The job was with a British medical team that took him to Sudan. Sadat's mother chose to go along with her husband. They left young Sadat in the care of his grandmother, whom he painted fondly in his later memoirs. His grandmother was highly regarded in the village, and as biographer Joseph Finkelstone wrote, many believed that she possessed unusual wisdom, as villagers often sought her advice and medicinal concoctions for their health problems. Despite her illiteracy, she was viewed as a gifted healer, and someone who garnered such respect that men rose to their feet when she arrived, standing in her honor. Sadat later wrote that he could never forget the words of his grandmother, which inspired such pride and nationalism in him. Quote, nothing is as important as your being a child of this land, end quote. His grandmother made key decisions about Sadat's education, as she believed he should follow in his father's footsteps, learning English and obtaining an education. Sometime in the early 1920s, his grandmother arranged for him to first attend a village Quran school and then a Coptic or Christian school. In the end, it was the Quran school that impacted Sadat the most, shaping his devout Muslim faith. At the Quran school, he recalled Sheikh Abdul Hamid, a teacher that Sadat credits with inspiring his love of education and, quote, the spirit of the true faith, end quote. It's in this village of Meet Abdul Kum that biographer Joseph Finkelstone recounts an anecdote from Sadat's sister about the young boy's admiration of Mahatma Gandhi. 
His sister, Sakina, described her brother's discovery of Gandhi's works, which inspired him so much he could soon recite much of it by heart. She added that Sadat would wrap himself in a white sheet and walk through the village with a goat on a string, refusing to eat. Her description of the events are somewhat inaccurate and muddled in terms of the timeline, however. Sakina said Sadat was 10 when this occurred, but Joseph Finkelstone explains Sadat, quote, could not have been 10 or his discovery of Gandhi did not occur in the village. By the time he was 10, Anwar had long since departed from his cherished village, end quote. Regardless of these inconsistencies, it is certain that Sadat did take great inspiration from the work of Gandhi. In 1924, when the head of the British Egyptian army was assassinated, troops withdrew from the area where his father was working and he lost his job. There was no longer any reason for Sadat's father to stay in Sudan. In 1925, when Sadat was six years old, his parents left Sudan and moved to Cairo where he joined them to attend secondary private school. The move was jarring for Sadat, who adored the village life and the time he shared with his grandmother. The house in Cairo was crowded, as it was the new home to Sadat and his 13 siblings, his grandmother, his mother, his father, and his father's two other wives. Though historians are unable to determine the exact timing, sometime during his education, he asked for his childhood playmate, Ekbal's hand in marriage. The young woman turned him down, since her parents still believed Sadat to be inferior to their family. Poverty was not only a limitation in achieving social standing, it was also often a limitation to obtaining a higher education. It was only by mere chance that he was able to surpass that. Sadat's father had enough money to send one, but not both of his sons to a secular school without any religious affiliation. The tuition fee was twice his monthly salary, but Sadat's older brother, Talat, ran away from home and when he returned, declared that he had no interest in attending school. This left the door open for Sadat. Well, Sadat struggled in school and failed to pass the test for the general certificate of education the first time he took it. He believed that God was dissatisfied with him, that he needed to humble himself and work harder. So with renewed determination, he switched schools and took the test again, this time passing. In 1936, at the age of 18, he earned a secondary school certificate. With this academic success and his growing sense of nationalism, Sadat began looking towards furthering his education at the Royal Military Academy. Typically, entrance into the academy was meant strictly for the elite middle class of Egypt. But here, another timely coincidence occurred for Sadat. As the waves of anti-colonialism and anti-British sentiment rose higher and higher throughout Egypt, the Waft Party wanted to make a change. They wanted to establish a military comprised of passionate, nationalistic young men from lower-class families. And so they altered their admission policies to include such candidates like Sadat. These poor young men did not benefit in any way from the current corrupt power structures that controlled Egypt. Therefore, they were the most eager to tackle the job of dismantling those powers. The Waft Party was acutely aware of this dynamic, and in 1936, they forced the doors of Egypt's Royal Military Academy open wider, making room for the young, bright-eyed men looking to make a difference for their country. Conveniently, this change in admission policy took place the same year that Sadat finished his primary education, and he decided that joining the military academy was the next logical step for him. So in 1936, 18-year-old Anwar al-Sadat entered Egypt's Royal Military Academy. The academy training course was two years long and covered traditional topics of math and science, but his studies also extended to Egyptian and world history, as well as famous military tactics and strategies. Sadat obsessively studied the British occupation of Egypt and its origins, as well as the tactical logistics and its political ramifications. He grew more and more indignant by the idea of Britain's stronghold on Egypt at the time. 
In fact, Sadat was so proud of Egypt's legacy dating back to the pharaohs that he felt his nation's subservience to an overbearing European nation was all the more humiliating. As his studies led him deeper through Egypt's political history, his outrage was also directed at the Egyptian politicians who had allowed this occupation to persist. He believed that corrupt government officials had managed to benefit under British rule while the nation's poor still suffered. Gone was the young village boy who once paraded through town wrapped in white sheet emulating his hero Gandhi. In his place was a steadfast and determined young man eager to follow the example of Ataturk. Ataturk was the Turkish warrior and politician who led his nation to independence in the 1920s. During his time at the military academy, he came to believe that the only way to achieve true independence for the people of Egypt was to expel the British with the force of an armed revolution. In 1938, Sadat graduated from the military academy with a new, elevated social status that he earned from his prestigious education. Finally, Ekbal's parents were swayed and the two were wed. Just a few months later, 20-year-old Sadat was posted to a government base in Mankabad, a small town in northern Egypt. This assignment came as a disappointment to Sadat. He believed all true revolutions must begin near the capital, and Mankabad was a tiny, remote village 200 miles away from the capital, Cairo. But he took his new station in stride and wasted no time while he was there. The 20-year-old began to rally his fellow officers in the area, calling them to his cause. He soon hosted regular meetings in his home, where he and the other officers drank tea, joked, and debated. The meetings became known as the National Assembly, as more and more officers joined the conversations and the meetings grew longer and longer. Many of these officers did not share Sadat's educational background or political mind, so he taught them about the current state of Egypt and its political and economic problems. He told them Egypt was held back, stuck beneath Britain's thumb. Sadat began to sow the seeds of revolution among these men, encouraging them to challenge the status quo. It was in 1938, during one of these fateful nights of engaging political debate, that Sadat met Gamal Abdel Nasser. Sadat's relationship with Nasser would not only change his own life, but change the course of Egypt's history as well. Nasser had also attended the military academy and was deeply influenced by Egyptian nationalists. He took inspiration from nationalist novelists, politicians, and leaders, crediting one of his military academy instructors in particular as being most influential. Just like Sadat, he left the academy with a growing dissatisfaction over the corrupt state of Egyptian politics. Sadat's biographer Joseph Finkelstone wrote in Anwar Sadat, Visionary Who Dared, that Nasser was slow to warm up to Sadat's initial attempts at camaraderie. Finkelstone added that the relationship between the two 20-year-olds grew at first out of a mutual respect and a burning desire to expel the British. Friendship came later. In 1939, Nasser and Sadat formed a nationalist group composed of junior Egyptian army officers called the Free Officers' Organization. The organization's mission was to have each officer work towards dismantling the Egyptian government, as well as to force out foreign influences. Officers were to use their military rank and positions in whatever ways they could to achieve these goals. Sadat then outlined six key principles that the group was meant to uphold. Those principles were the elimination of imperialism, the destruction of feudalism, the establishment of social justice, the formation of a strong Egyptian army, the creation of a sound democratic life, and liberation of the government from the control of capitalists. Basically, the group intended to overthrow corrupt government officials to allow for more equality for the citizens of Egypt. Then they would strengthen their military and form a democratic system of government free of foreign rule and free from capitalism. Simple enough, right? Maybe not. As you'd expect, Sadat faced many more challenges on the road to liberating Egypt from centuries of British imperialism. But the grand scale of the task did not deter Sadat. In fact, 
the current state of affairs around the world led Sadat and many other Egyptians to believe that the tide was finally turning against the powers of Great Britain. The Second World War was just getting underway. Germany had gained the upper hand against Great Britain and the Soviet Union in the early years of the war from 1939 to 1940. Watching Britain falter against its enemies was encouraging to the Egyptians. Even if he wasn't completely on board with Germany's position in the war, they shared a common enemy, Sadat's greatest foe, Britain. They believed that if Britain's power could be defeated by Germans, or the Axis powers as they were called during the war, then Egypt could finally expel them once and for all. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. And now, back to our story. In 1940, when he was 22, the military relocated Anwar al-Sadat. His new station was Marsa Matru, Egypt, on the Mediterranean coast. There, he continued to network with other officers. He expanded the Free Officers Organization and continued to plan his revolution. One of the men he met there was General Aziz al-Mazri, who had become so well-known for his hatred of the British that he was removed from his post and sent on an indefinite vacation. Sadat had met Masri a number of times throughout their careers in the military, and Sadat was an impressive presence that won the general over. Finkelstone wrote of the developing relationship between Sadat and al-Masri, quote, The general had, he said, met tricksters whose brave patriotic declarations led to mischief and fiascos. But he was ready to accept that Sadat and his group were serious as well as practical, end quote. Britain suffered defeat after defeat to the Axis powers. They were weakened and vulnerable, and the Egyptians took this opportunity to voice their opposition to the war. Egypt believed that Britain forced them into a war that they wanted no part in. Sadat felt that it was the prime time to aggressively push back on the British forces that were stationed in Egypt. In 1941, 23-year-old Sadat laid out a strategy for his first attempted revolution. After an attack by the Axis powers on Egyptian soil, which seized Marsa Matru, where Sadat was stationed, Britain ordered the withdrawal of Egyptian units from the site. It was the perfect moment for Sadat's revolution. All the withdrawing troops, according to his plan, were to meet at the Mena House Hotel, just outside of the capital, Cairo, and together they would storm the city. The troops were to descend onto Cairo. They'd attack the unsuspecting British, along with any Egyptians who supported their rule, and kick them out of the city, reclaiming their government. But on the summer morning in 1941, when the plan was to take place, an optimistic Sadat arrived at the hotel meeting place with his unit, but no other units came to help execute the plan, and Sadat was forced to abandon course. Sadat later said that the failure was a blessing in disguise, for if the attempted coup failed, they would have revealed themselves to their enemy, and the Free Officers' Organization could have been put in danger. Sadat was not discouraged and he remained active in his fight against British occupation and the British forces at large in the world. Soon after his failed revolution, General al-Masri came to him for help. The general was hoping that Sadat and his men could assist him in an escape to Iraq. German officers had reached out to Masri, asking that he aid the Iraqi people in a revolt against British occupation in their country. Since Britain was always Sadat's first and foremost enemy, he naturally agreed to help. But it was a botched escape. 
The Germans had provided Masri with a small aircraft to make it to his destination, but there was a problem with the oil pump, and Masri and his two pilots had to make an emergency landing. Though Masri and the two pilots escaped the near crash landing unharmed and fled to Cairo, word of the scheme spread through police and intelligence agencies. Soon Sadat's involvement was well known, and he was taken in for questioning. The court didn't have enough evidence to convict him of any wrongdoing, so he was free to go. But now he was no longer working with the free officers anonymously. His position had been exposed and he was compromised. As the war progressed, the Egyptians believed that no matter the outcome, their country would remain under foreign control. Egyptian officers believed that they would like to see another country, likely Italy, take over in Britain's wake. Thus, Sadat and his free officers drafted a treaty to the Axis powers, offering to train and fight alongside them against the British. This aid was to be provided in exchange for support towards an independent Egypt when the war was over. Seeking Nazi contacts who could deliver this treaty to Hitler's government, Sadat was introduced to two Nazi officers named Epler and Sandy. The men frequently spent their evenings at a nightclub called the Kit Kat, where they spent excessive amounts of money, which quickly garnered the suspicion of both staff and patrons. The police kept a close watch on the Germans and eventually arrested them for questioning. Once in custody, it took very little effort on the side of the authorities to get what they needed. The two Nazi officers swiftly flipped on Sadat and gave up his name with no qualms. Sadat was arrested and interrogated. While in custody, a general told Sadat his father would be executed if he did not confess. But Sadat saw through the intimidation tactic and held firm. It was looking like the small amount of evidence available and the testimonies of the two German officers might not be enough to convict him. But Sadat would not be lucky enough to escape jail a second time. Britain was making efforts to tighten its grip on an emboldened and ever-rebellious Egypt, and so their officials in Egypt acted swiftly against Sadat. He was stripped of his military ranking and imprisoned for two years, from 1941 to 1943. Prison was an obvious setback for Sadat and his hopes for Egyptian revolution, but he maintained his tunnel vision and used his time in prison wisely. Conditions were comfortable enough, and he was provided books and newspapers, so he took advantage of the situation. He requested texts in English and German and started teaching himself the languages he thought would be most crucial to his success in the future. Sadat was a deeply loyal man, and despite being separated from his men, he still felt in his heart that he was just as much a part of the revolution as ever. He was touched and comforted by the news that his fellow officers were helping to support his family in his absence. This loyalty was unspeakably valuable to Sadat. He had not been forgotten. He was in their hearts and minds as they were in his. In late 1943, still imprisoned but growing restless, the 25-year-old took matters into his own hands once again. He went on a personal hunger strike which forced the guards to have him transferred to a nearby hospital. The hospital posed no challenge to escape from, and soon, Sadat was a free man once again. Sadat lived as a fugitive for the year following his escape and disguised himself with a beard, calling himself Haji Mohammed. During that time, he took a number of odd jobs, but was never fully able to lift himself out of poverty. During his incarceration, his fellow officer Nasser had come to lead the Free Officers Organization. To Sadat's disappointment, Nasser changed the direction of the mission. Nasser grew the organization, but he also restructured and reorganized the group. Sadat wrote, quote, he created secret units in the army, each unknown to each other, end quote. Sadat described a recruitment process that reached every single department in the army, including sensitive departments in the army administration. Now there were members of the Free Officers Organization secretly holding positions at all levels of the military. The changes were off-putting to Sadat. Some believe that the new system varied too much from his original vision, 
while others suggest that prison may have radicalized Sadat. Either way, he was ready for a more active, a more violent means of revolution. In 1945, the end of World War II also brought the end of martial law, under which Sadat had been imprisoned. And now he was a free man, but he still felt the oppression of the British occupiers all around him. He wrote, quote, feeling personal liberty could hardly be real until our entire homeland had been liberated, end quote. His time in prison had given him all the time in the world to plan and strategize and dream of Egypt's liberation, and he was more empowered than ever to keep on. Sadat was ready to turn to murder as a means to rid his country of its foreign occupiers. He started planning his own underground revolution alongside other like-minded revolutionaries, and they began to plot the assassinations of various politicians. On January 6, 1946, a member of Sadat's group took out a pro-British politician named Amin Osman Pasha. Osman became a target when he declared that the British-Egyptian Union was, quote, as unbreakable as a Catholic marriage, end quote. As a member of the aristocracy, Osman's assassination caught the attention of the entire nation. Many even cheered for the demise of the British supporter. The police were easily able to locate and arrest the assassin, and the young man quickly gave up Sadat as the ringleader of the operation. Just a few days later, Sadat was once again arrested, and this time he was sent to solitary confinement. He was famously kept in cell 54. It was in there that Sadat sat, alone without even a single item in his space other than a palm fiber mat to sleep on. Sadat recounted the filth of the prison and how the walls leaked water in the winter and were covered in bugs in the summer. There he sat for five years. During this time, he grew even more self-reflective, introspective, and devout in his Muslim faith. He developed a closer relationship with Allah. He believed that Allah had never let him down the way that other people had. During this time, he also reflected on his marriage to Ekbal. He came to realize it was never really what he wanted. It was a union he entered out of obligation and not love. Despite their history and the affection he felt for her, and even though she had given him four children, one of whom passed away in infancy, he did not truly love her. He did believe, however, that the true love of a woman was invaluable to the spirit of a man. In 1950, at age 32, Sadat was finally released. He believed he had wasted too much of his precious life behind bars due to his foolish mistakes, and he intended to be smarter now. Instead of returning to his wife and children in Cairo, he went to the town of Helwan and stayed at a hotel to continue his self-reflection and seek treatment for illnesses sustained in prison. The gardens in Helwan boasted mineral waters which Sadat hoped could treat his digestive issues. Perhaps because he was worried about him, an old friend, Hassan Izat, came to see Sadat in Helwan and persuaded him to leave the hotel with him. The visit proved extremely fateful. While Sadat visited with Hassan and his wife, a young woman paid them a visit. She was Jihan Rauf, a relative of Hassan's wife. Well, the pair was immediately smitten. Jihan was beautiful and sophisticated, raised by her English mother, who taught her to speak English. Jihan knew Sadat from the news as the hero involved in the assassination of Osman, for which he had been imprisoned. Jihan was impressed by his role as a rebellious nationalist, and he found her intelligence and independence extremely attractive. They were soon married, but not before Jihan required that Sadat divorce his first wife, whom he continued to support financially through the rest of his life. His life was headed in a new direction. He was soon reinstated into the armed forces on January 15, 1950, rejoining at the same rank of captain that he held when he was dismissed. Shortly thereafter, he reconnected once again with Nasser and rejoined the Free Officers Organization, as Sadat believed this was the most established anti-British movement. Sadat was happy to be back in the fold, and soon he rose in the ranks, taking a position on Nasser's new constituent committee within the Free Officers. 
This committee was led by Nasser's most trusted and loyal officers. Sadat believed he had a lot to offer the committee, including intelligence. He wrote, adding, quote, It was not difficult for Nasser to realize that he could depend on me, and this, his act of loyalty in selecting me, would make me, in turn, loyal to him for life, end quote. In this new role, Sadat advised Nasser in matters of revolutionary activity and strategizing. Sadat even talked Nasser out of another assassination attempt, citing his own failures as a deterrent. Sadat believed that individual, small-scale acts of violence were ineffective at bringing about large-scale change. Sadat had bigger plans. He wanted to instigate a military coup against the current government regime. The overindulgent, self-serving King Farouk was currently seated at the head of the British-influenced government, a puppet for their agenda. It was widely believed that his associates had profited from selling defective weapons to the Egyptian armed forces. This put him at odds with the military. In 1952, Sadat and Nasser brought their rebellion right to his gates. The 33-year-old was posted at the time in the Sinai Peninsula along with his new wife, Jihan. On July 21, 1952, he received an urgent message from Nasser calling him to Cairo. The revolution was starting. After being called to action by Nasser, Sadat eagerly drove to Cairo on July 21, 1952 to join the fight of liberating his beloved country once and for all. Everything he had worked and fought so hard for was finally coming to fruition. But when he arrived in Cairo at the meeting point Nasser had directed him to, he found that no one else was there. He believed that the coup had been stalled and instead took his wife out to see a movie. The film they chose was actually starring then-actor and future U.S. President Ronald Reagan. When the couple finally returned to where they were staying after midnight, Sadat's heart sank. There was a message from Nasser telling where to meet him. Sadat feared he had missed his chance to be part of the revolution while he was at the movies. He rushed to the meeting point and found the struggle between British guards and Egyptian revolutionaries already well underway. Sadat then drove to King Farouk's headquarters, which he heard had already been invaded. There he found Nasser and received additional instructions. He was to take control of the telephone lines and serve as the communications officer, contacting the rebel leaders all over the country, in Sinai, the Western Desert, and Alexandria to coordinate additional offensive tactics. Sadat literally became the voice of the revolution. Two days later, Nasser instructed him to take over the Cairo radio station and issue an official proclamation. Sadat was in charge of announcing the coup to the people of Egypt. When Sadat made his announcement over Egyptian airwaves, many of the Egyptian people were thrilled. But many feared what would come next for their government and received the news with reserved enthusiasm. Sadat described it as, quote, festive silence. Sadat then had the task of issuing the demands of the revolutionaries to King Farouk. Leave Egypt by 6 p.m. that same day, July 26, 1952, or face the consequences. So on that fateful day, the last king of Egypt fled his country to Italy, ushering in a new era of Egyptian independence. In the coming years, between 1954 and 1956, the Free Officers Organization abolished the old constitution, established the new Republic of Egypt, ended British occupation in Egypt, and liberated their neighboring Sudan from British occupation as well. Sadat's dreams had been realized. He wrote in his memoir, quote, Then came the 1952 revolution. My participation was not in itself a matter of importance to me. Of more import than anything else was the fact that the revolution had been carried out. The dream that had taken hold of my life ever since I was a child had come true, end quote. Right after the success in the 1952 revolution, the free officers took over the government. A fellow revolutionary who fought alongside Nasser named Mohammed Naguib became president and Nasser became prime minister. But a tense power struggle broke out between the two leaders and Nasser, who had a better grasp on domestic policies, 
took over as president in 1956. Nasser took along with him the ever-loyal Sadat, who he made his vice president. Many other officers were critical of this choice. They either believed that Sadat's role in the revolution was overstated and that his glory was unwarranted, or they saw him as too quiet and weak for the role. To fend off his critics, Sadat took a more cautious approach to his highly visible role in the new government. He did not want any part in the power struggles or squabbles among the other top officials. He was never viewed as a threat, nor taken very seriously, but his adversaries underestimated him. His daughter, Camelia Anwar Sadat, wrote in a tribute to her father, quote, He envisioned and planned, but did not overwhelm people with his insights and strength. He never showed his power, a response to his environment growing up, in which showing power often invited confrontation, end quote. So instead of trying to assert himself in the administration, he kept his head down to avoid issues with his fellow officers. Nasser, a deeply distrusting and paranoid man, appreciated Sadat's apparently agenda-free contributions, and so Sadat remained one of his trusted advisors. But Nasser's presidency was marred by a continued conflict. Though Britain had agreed to exit the country, they negotiated the timeline and the terms of their exit until 1955, when British forces finally left the country. Additionally, long-standing tensions between Egypt and Israel began to resurface. Israel is the only Jewish nation-state, or a country comprised primarily of a singular cultural or ethnic group, in the world. It was established as a national homeland for the Jewish population after the British defeated the Ottoman Empire in World War I and became a crucial safe haven for Jewish people fleeing the Holocaust during World War II. Jewish people fled to this region on the Mediterranean Sea, which was already occupied by Palestinians, Arab and Muslim people who called the territory Palestine. Both the Jewish people and the Palestinians believed that they had inherent religious rights to the land, beliefs that date all the way back to the time of Moses and the Bible. Violent clashes broke out between the groups over territorial land rights, and the United Nations eventually stepped in and agreed to divide the two populations. In 1948, the United Nations helped establish Israel as its own nation. This meddling in Middle Eastern affairs fueled the resentments of the Arab communities towards the West even more. These new national borders displaced much of the Palestinian population, which did not sit well with the other Arab nations, including Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq. They believed this was an extension of long-standing Jewish efforts to push the Arabs off of their land. Egypt, along with its neighboring Arab countries, opposed the idea of Israel, and land disputes continued. The two nations struggled over access to a shipping trade route through the Straits of Tehran, which passed between Egypt's Sinai Peninsula and what is currently Saudi Arabia. Israel previously had fought for the right to access this water passage, which Egypt was blocking. Egypt eventually relinquished and guaranteed Israel's access. But tensions between the two nations never really subsided, and in a shocking move, Nasser made the decision to close the passageway to Israeli ships in May of 1967. Israel interpreted this as a declaration of war. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to historical figures. In May 1967, Israel interpreted Egypt's closure of the Sinai Peninsula as a declaration of war and preemptively attacked Egypt and its neighbors Jordan and Syria. Anwar al-Sadat's homeland was once again threatened by a foreign power. The initial attacks, which began on June 5, 1967, destroyed the Egyptian Air Force. In the following days, Israeli forces easily defeated the Egyptian military, seizing city after city. One of the greatest losses to the Israeli military came when they overtook the Sinai Peninsula. This region has tremendous religious significance to Jews, Muslims, and Christians. All three religions believe that Mount Sinai is the site where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. 
On June 11th, six days later, the countries agreed to a ceasefire, but the loss of such important holy sites was an almost unbearable humiliation for Egypt. This came to be known as the Six-Day War, and it wore heavily on Nasser, who tried to step down from his role as president. Neither Sadat nor the Egyptian people supported the decision, and so he stayed in office. The mass destruction Egypt suffered during those six days highlighted the fact that Egypt was not organized enough, nor were the military and government leaders strong enough to enter into war. Nasser took the defeat very personally, and those closest to him said that the shame of his failure sucked the life out of him. And just three years later, on September 20th, 1970, Nasser passed away. Later, Sadat reflected on his friend's passing in his autobiography. He wrote that just before Nasser died, they, quote, shared the same fears about what might happen in Egypt after Nasser's departure. Nasser concurred with me that great burdens were waiting for his successor, and I laughed and told him, Allah will have to help the poor fellow. It certainly never crossed our minds that Nasser would die that very same month, or that I would be taking over, but that was the will of Allah." End quote. As vice president, Sadat was next in line to take over Nasser's role as president. But many were skeptical about Sadat's abilities, since he had downplayed his strengths during the Nasser administration. Many saw him as a warm body and a placeholder, while others felt he was weak and would crumble under mounting pressure. Sadat and Nasser were right in their assessment that the next president would face some serious challenges. Sadat inherited a depleted economy and a government in trouble. Egypt's foreign relationships had become tense, particularly with Israel and the Soviet Union, but Sadat was not to be underestimated. The Egyptian constitution calls for a 60-day window to select a new president. But after only nine days, Sadat was formally elected. He received just over 90% of the votes in a national referendum. So on October 15, 1970, he officially took office as president of Egypt. His first line of business was what later became called the Corrective Revolution, which began on May 15, 1970. The movement was meant to reinstate order into what had become a corrupt administration under Nasser. Sadat believed wholeheartedly in order and the rule of law and set out to create a government administration that could be held accountable. He soon realized the current government had a ways to go. Early in his presidency, he was given a pile of transcripts, which he soon discovered were from personal telephone calls that had been secretly wiretapped. Nasser's paranoia over who he could trust led him to implement wide-scale wiretapping and a secret police force. Sadat immediately called an end to the wiretapping and cut back the presence of the secret police. Next, he began to clean up the corrupt elected officials, starting with the chief of the air defense system who had ties to the Soviet Union, Ali Sabri, and the interior minister, Shirawi Goma. The dismissal of the interior minister was not taken too kindly by the rest of the top-level officials who promptly gave their resignations. They believed Sadat could be strong-armed into allowing Goma to keep his position. But Sadat always had what was best for his country at the forefront of his mind. He could not be swayed by power struggles and infighting. So rather than backing down in the face of disapproval, he accepted the resignations and placed the group under house arrest. He quickly filled the empty positions with officers he hand-selected. These were men he believed would serve Egypt above all else, rather than serve their own self-interests. The corrective revolution proved successful and popular with the people of Egypt and exemplified Sadat's ability to understand the needs of his people and provide for them. Sadat didn't stop there in working to correct the wrongs of the past. Next, he set about working alongside Syrian President Hafez Assad to regain control of the land that was lost to Israel in the 1967 Six-Day War. Sadat entered into peace negotiations throughout 1971 with Israel and the United States, which had gotten involved, hoping to mediate and avoid further confrontation. But since so much of this conflict was rooted in religious ideology, there were very strong feelings on both sides. 
To the Arab nations, Israel was the country instituted by foreigners that forced their people out of their rightful home and holy land. So aside from Egypt, none of the other Arab nations were willing to negotiate peace talks with Israel. For three months, U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger tried to help bring both Egypt and Israel to a peaceful agreement. But the road to peace was rocky. Challenges remained even though Sadat's willingness to make peace came as a significant departure from the anti-Israeli politicians who ruled before him. But after these three months, Sadat concluded that war could not be avoided. He declared that he was willing to, quote, sacrifice a million Egyptian soldiers, if that's what it took to resecure Egyptian land taken by Israel. He then went to work planning and strategizing, hoping to avoid a crisis similar to the 1967 Six-Day War. Sadat's plan was to issue so much damage on the small country of Israel, sending the message that they were not secure. He wrote in his autobiography, quote, I had to win back honor and prestige for my people. It would be necessary to inflict losses on Israel. The myth that they were unbeatable had grown. I needed to affect the psyche of the Israelis to make them understand that territory alone provides no real security. In the months leading up to the war, on April 9, 1973, he told Newsweek in an interview, quote, The time has come for a shock. Diplomacy will continue before, during, and after the battle. All West Europeans are telling us the world has fallen asleep over the Middle East crisis, but they will soon wake up. The resumption of hostilities is the only way out, end quote. On October 6, 1973, on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, Sadat entered into war with Israel, with a surprise attack on the country. In the early days of the war, the element of surprise worked in Egypt's favor. But soon, other countries started coming to the aid of Israel. The Soviet Union requested negotiations for a ceasefire with Sadat. And when it looked like Israel's defeat was imminent, the United States stepped in to help them with more power and resources than the Middle East had ever seen. Only two weeks later, Sadat was overpowered and forced to accept a ceasefire. Despite all of this, the early successes raised Egyptian pride and morale significantly. Sadat believed that the Yom Kippur War, as it came to be called, was a success for Egypt. He believed that he had indeed affected their psyches and bruised their egos. Sadat also believed his small successes helped establish that Egypt was a worthy opponent, saying, quote, a nation cannot bargain when its opponent does not believe it has the power to escalate the stakes, to enforce its will, end quote. What followed were negotiations led by Henry Kissinger in what is called shuttle diplomacy. This is when negotiations are conducted by a mediator who travels between two or more parties that are reluctant to hold direct discussions. In 1973, the United Nations, along with the United States, Soviet Union, Egypt, Jordan, and Israel, met in what came to be known as the Geneva Conference. President Assad of Syria disapproved of peace negotiations with Israel, deeming them dangerous, and he refused to attend. The negotiations at the conference itself were far from successful, but the meeting was not a complete failure either. This historic gathering showcased Sadat's unprecedented willingness to compromise and work towards a peaceful solution. In 1974 and 1975, more negotiations resulted in both countries entering into agreements to remove their troops from their stations on the Sinai Peninsula. But this was a small step and peace between the two nations still seemed insurmountable. The stress of such a challenging task began to take a toll on Sadat's body, as well as his mind. His biographer Finkelstone even described hemorrhaging caused by the wear and tear of stress. Finkelstone also described Sadat's emotional anguish over the struggle. He wrote that he was a proud man, bitterly frustrated, that peace had always been his aim and that his greatness in the end lay in his ability to hold on to main aims. In 1976, the United States elected a new president, Jimmy Carter, who Sadat was eager to turn into an ally. 
Sadat believed that only the United States had the power and resources to help negotiate peace between Egypt and Israel. Sadat's diplomatic participation in dialogues surrounding peaceful negotiations helped his reputation abroad. Carter even pledged to Sadat that he would help work out a solution between the feuding nations. But neither of them had any idea what that solution might be. Finkelstone wrote, quote, Sadat saw himself, and was increasingly seen by European leaders, as a statesman of international stature, end quote. Finkelstone believed this gave Sadat a newfound confidence to speak out against what he felt were closed-minded viewpoints of his critics. The years of failed military attacks and heated, unmoving peace talks weighed on Sadat. Finkelstone wrote, quote, Sadat realized that what he had to do was very complex. He had to break through psychological barriers, and he would be misunderstood and even reviled. But he knew also that he could not rely on anyone else." End quote. The man was extremely committed to finding a path towards peace with Israel. He later wrote, quote, He who cannot change the very fabric of his thought will never be able to change reality and will never, therefore, make any progress." End quote. Sadat wanted to break free of unproductive cycles of negotiations and began wondering why he shouldn't take the negotiations directly to Israel himself. And so he took a brand new approach to the Arab-Israeli crisis, carrying with him a message of peace to deliver to the Israeli parliament, a message no other Arab leader was willing to express. On November 20th, 1977, he stood before the parliamentarians. His speech broadcast nationwide and delivered the following message, quote, you would like to live with us in this region of the world. In all sincerity, I tell you, we welcome you among us with full security and safety. Today, I tell you and declare it to the whole world that we accept to live with you in permanent peace based on justice." End quote. His speech was received tremendously with joy and appreciation by the Israeli people. The Israeli Prime Minister at the time, Yitzhak Rabin, later wrote, quote, The mere fact that an Arab leader who waged war against Israel came forth and stated that he understood our need for security and that it must be found to meet our legitimate concern was absolutely revolutionary, end quote. Of all the big political moves that Sadat had made in his career, from the Corrective Revolution to the Yom Kippur War, no other decision was as notable or symbolic as his decision to visit Jerusalem, Israel. Sadat was painfully aware that it would have been easier to take the same positions as other Arab leaders, but he believed that he had a duty to God and his people to guide his nation towards peace. On November 21, 1977, the day after his historic speech, Sadat returned home to overwhelming support. His limousine was met in Cairo by people chanting, Sadat, Sadat, the man of peace. Sadat was not without his critics, however, and his attempt at peace brought up some very strong feelings across the Arab world. Some were pleased to see progress towards peace, and other nations were opposed, still holding on to centuries of anti-Semitism and hatred for Western involvement in the region. According to Finkelstone, the ruler of Saudi Arabia in 1977, King Khaled, said that, quote, never again would it be possible for him to put his hand into Sadat's, end quote, and that he never prayed against anyone, but found himself praying that Sadat's plane to Jerusalem would, quote, crash before he gets there so that he may not become a scandal for us all, end quote. And so this man, who had dreamed since he was a young boy of peace and justice, remained steadfast in pursuit of both. Sadat disregarded his critics and took a great leap of faith in extending an olive branch to Israel, his country's long-standing enemy. And it looked like it was all going to pay off. Nothing is ever so simple, though. Negotiations between Israel and Egypt, which the United States continued to mediate, did not go so smoothly in the months that followed. Territorial disputes hindered the progress of the discussions, and the two countries remained in a stalemate. But in September 1978, 
President Jimmy Carter invited Anwar al-Sadat and Israel's Prime Minister Menachem Begin to the United States for formal peace talks. Carter invited the two world leaders to Camp David, a country home retreat for U.S. presidents just outside of Washington, D.C. After 11 days of debate, argument, and lengthy discussions, Sadat, Begin, and Carter reached an agreement. On September 17, 1978, the framework for peace was established and actionable next steps were laid out for each country. This historic agreement was a huge political landmark for the Middle East, and that same year, Sadat and Begin were awarded a joint Nobel Peace Prize. In his acceptance speech, 60-year-old Sadat said, quote, Let us put an end to wars. Let us reshape life on the solid basis of equity and truth, end quote. This vague framework from the 1978 agreements at Camp David were then honed and refined, and in March of 1979, the leaders signed the Egyptian-Israeli Peace Treaty. The treaty was meant to normalize relations between the two countries with the removal of Israel's armed forces from land they had captured in the Six-Day War of 1967. Egypt would then reopen the waterways of the Straits of Tehran, as well as the Suez Canal to Israeli trade ships. The treaty was not so popular among the rest of the Arab world, and the League of Arab States, or as it is currently known, the Arab League, suspended Egypt's membership after the treaty was signed. The Arab League is a voluntary collection of countries with a majority Arab population in North Africa, with the aim to quote, strengthen ties among member states, coordinate their politics, and direct them towards a common good, end quote, according to BBC News. Despite such opposition, Sadat remained focused on his peace efforts throughout 1979 and the early 80s. But tragically, Sadat's work would be cut short. On October 6, 1981, Anwar al-Sadat attended a celebratory parade honoring Egypt's victories in the Yom Kippur War when gunfire rained down on the parade. The Egyptian Islamic Jihad, a radical militant group, stormed the celebration, firing automatic weapons and throwing a grenade into the crowds. Egyptian security eventually disarmed the dissidents, but it was already too late for Sadat. Sadat was fatally injured and passed away on October 6, 1981, at the age of 63. He was not buried with much fanfare. Instead, his family held an extremely private funeral. Sadat had expressed to his wife, Jihan, that when he died, he wanted to be returned to the village he grew up in, meet Abul Qum, or to be laid to rest at the foot of Mount Sinai. This site was of great religious importance, and it was also land that he had fought so hard to free from Israel after the Yom Kippur War. If he was buried at this religious landmark, he believed it would send the message that Quote, all religions are the same, that God is one for all of us, end quote. Neither plan for his burial came to fruition, however. Instead, Jihan chose the site of the unknown soldier memorial for her husband's final resting place. The memorial in Cairo was built to honor the men who had lost their lives in the Yom Kippur War. This was a place of honor and respect that Sadat himself was very proud to visit. The ceremony was small and private and his grave at the site simply reads, Hero of War and Peace. Though his political career had some early setbacks, and while many of his colleagues underestimated his abilities, it's clear that Sadat was a daring and diplomatic politician. He did not shy away from challenging traditional political rhetoric or hesitate to rethink his own belief system. He wrote in his autobiography, quote, we were calling for our land, but refusing to ask it of those who occupied it. We were calling for our rights, but refusing to sit down with those who had deprived us of them." End quote. Thus, Sadat's trip to Jerusalem truly was a revolution where he finally broke tradition and sat down with his foes, asking for peace. This ushered in a new way of thinking and approaching foreign affairs with Israel. In the wake of his death, peace negotiations continued to see ups and downs, and Sadat's legacy continues to evolve over time. Currently, in 2018, 
relations between Egypt and Israel are the best they have ever been, despite the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Even still, Anwar al-Sadat will be remembered in history for his unwavering commitment to peace. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode drops every other Wednesday, but if you subscribe, you don't have to remember that. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Thank you. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Lisa Fry and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.